This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. What began to happen in Canada, Mr. Speaker, and I, I, I saw this uh, myself a number of times in my teaching, is that American right holders through American law firms would often allege content infringement in Canada and send out a letter saying, you've, you've uh, infringed copyright, we're going to sue you, please pay X, X thousands of dollars uh, by clicking on this link and uh, we will forget this. And sadly, Mr. Speaker, a number of people didn't realize that this kind of claim was actually being made against Canadian law in, in contravention of Canadian law and actually paid out. Copyright threats and lawsuits against individuals have been around for a while. The Canadian Recording Industry Association, which now calls itself Music Canada, led the charge way back in 2003 with threats to sue Napster users. Lawsuits were launched a year later, but were rejected by the federal court, setting a confluence of concerns involving evidence, privacy, and the state of Canadian copyright law. Those threats receded for about a decade, but now they're back. Copyright notices, litigation threats, settlement demands, and actual lawsuits have reemerged at the very time that the music and movie industries are experiencing record streaming revenues and massive popularity of online services. There's a lot of confusion and concern about what's happening, what the notices mean, the implications of the threats and lawsuits, and where Canadian law stands on the issue. Here to help sort through what's going on is James Plotkin, a lawyer with Casa Cycli in Ottawa, who has taken on several of these copyright cases. Grateful to you for coming on and helping unpack a little bit what's taking place. I feel like for this episode in particular, we, we need the caveat, this, this is not legal advice. We're having a conversation about our understanding of the law. Of course, I would never give legal advice into a microphone in a podcast. Okay, that's good to hear, no, nor should you. <laughs> that's right. uh, so, so why don't we start by clarifying the difference between the threats that people are seeing oftentimes through the notice and notice system as opposed to the lawsuits, and why don't we start with the threats and the notice and notice system. Did you hear the one about the 86-year-old grandmother who's facing a $5,000 fine for illegally downloading a zombie-killing video game? It's no Halloween joke. Ontario's Christine McMillan recently received two emails claiming she had illegally downloaded Metro 2033. She says she's innocent and insists her wireless connection may have been hacked. Well, guilty or not, McMillan is one of tens of thousands of Canadians who've received similar notices. Part of the new rules that came came in under changes to Canada's Copyright Act. The notice notice system came in in 2012 when Canada modernized its copyright legislation. Uh, and this was heralded as a quote-unquote made-in-Canada approach to uh, dealing with online uh, piracy of music, films, and other copyrighted content. And this was in juxtaposition with the notice and takedown system that was in effect and has been in effect in the United States since uh, about 2000 under their copyright legislation called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And so the way the notice and notice system works essentially is a rights holder may send a, a notice of, of uh, purported infringement or a notice of, of uh, infringement to an ISP, and the ISP then, without actually disclosing the identity of the subscriber, forwards that to the subscriber with usually a, an introductory text saying, you know, 
we received this from the rights holder, we have not verified its veracity, but here it is, and then the content of the notice comes to the individual. Okay, so the any piracy agency or the rights holder, whoever happens to be sending these notices, doesn't know the, indiv- the identity of the individual, then the ISP isn't disclosing it. They're merely serving as a conduit to transfer on this message? Correct, and that's under the notice and notice regime, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about some other mechanisms that rights holders are used to, in fact, get at that information. But the notice and notice is an administrative process, essentially, that's supposed to... Uh, act as an educational and deterrence tool to individuals who hopefully by receiving one or more of these notices will curb whatever habits that they uh, have been doing online to the extent that those individuals, the subscribers themselves, actually have done the infringement. And that's a totally different matter. They may not have been the individuals to have infringed if anyone did at all. Okay, right. So that I think that's an important point to, to make. So we're talking here about an allegation based on some entity trying to monitor activity online. This isn't proof. It's not determinative. It's not a judgment. It's not proof. It's not determinative. And again, it's meant to be a notice. It's not any proof of, of that. Le- first of all, that the legal rights even exist and to the extent that they do, that they've been infringed and to the extent that they exist and have been infringed, that they've been infringed by the individual who receives the notice. Because we have to recall that the ISP forwards this information to their subscriber. But if you have six people living in your house and 20 people visiting and using the Wi-Fi, it might very well be that someone other than that subscriber uh, did the infringement to the extent that there was one. Okay, fair enough. And do the ISPs have to forward on these notices? In fact, they do. And while there are no damages or or any remedies against individuals uh, who receive notices, there are uh, statutory damages under Section 41.26 of the Copyright Act that can be levied against ISPs for failing to comply with the system. And in fact, uh, one of these rights holders called Me Too Productions is currently pursuing Tech Savvy, a Canadian uh, ISP, uh, attempting to get these statutory damages for alleged failures to properly forward these notices. Okay, so the internet providers themselves obviously aren't self-generating the notices. They're serving as this conduit forwarding on the notices. And under the current system, effectively, they've got no real choice but to forward on those notices or the ISP itself faces the prospect of real liability. That's correct. It's interesting. Now, I, my understanding is the system was in place well before it became formalized within the Copyright Act in 2012 and then took a couple of years until it actually took effect. But this was used on an informal basis for, for many years and, and seemed to have some amount of effectiveness in terms of addressing the behavior that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So where did we go wrong in terms of what, what we see taking place right now? Well, I suppose whether we went wrong depends on, depends on who you ask. Uh, my, one of my issues or with this system from my perspective is that up until recently, and, and quite recently in fact, the content of these notices were not regulated at all. So rights holders could essentially put in whatever they want, uh, and I think there may be varying levels of classiness by people in their notices. I think some had more of a a shakedown approach, whereas others were actually trying to educate and deter further infringements. And this all changed uh, recently, about six months ago, in fact, when Parliament, as part of the uh, budget bill, I I believe it was uh, C86, introduced an amendment to Section 41.25 of the Act and added a subsection 3, which prohibited uh, the inclusion of certain content. And among that, uh, offers to settle and any request or demand from I, for either payment for an alleged infringement or for personal information. So this could not be used as a way to actually get at the person's identity or to extract a settlement from them directly. Okay, so when you say the some were being used as a shakedown, essentially what you're saying is that some were putting in some sort of settlement demand or legal demands in the notification itself. 
frankly, this Good. sounds a little bit creepy. So there are <laughs> no, 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 it does. I think you know, if there's a million Canadians out there, million Canadians being monitored, who exactly is doing the monitoring, and what kinds of information do they have? Okay, well, we are one company that is doing monitoring of pirated content. So we're not monitoring people, we're monitoring the pirated content. If people go to the pirated content to download it, they may become subject to our monitoring effort. Yes, I've, I've seen, I've heard anecdotally, and in one instance I've actually seen one of these notices from, from way back. And yeah, the content, as I said, there are varying degrees of classiness. I mean, I, I recently, a client of mine showed me one from HBO, and, and they didn't do that. It was really more of an education approach. They didn't threaten the lawsuit. They didn't uh, threaten to take legal action, but, you know, left that on the table, of course, in the event the infringement uh, continued. And he also said that it came remarkably quickly. So this individual had downloaded an episode of the popular show Game of Thrones, and he said that shortly, within five or ten minutes after having completed the download, he had received a notice from HBO, or from the ISP, or HBO via the ISP, uh, quite quickly, in fact, and, and so they, they act. Wow, within minutes of downloading, it went from HBO, or whoever does the monitoring for them, to the ISP, and then forwarded along directly to the subscriber. Within minutes, and so it seems HBO might have even a more advanced content uh, uh, surveillance system than others, but that's, I'm just speculating. Wow, that's pretty amazing to, to hear the speed with which they were able to do that. Now, for those that were so-called less classy, they're including, I assume, some they included some kind of link ultimately to saying, if you, if you pay, if you click, please click on this link or click on this link, and there, there would be some sort of page that would allow the person to pay a fee, presumably, and then settle the claim. They're doing so without knowing who the person is, without having proven the allegation. Um, they're just, in a sense, taking advantage of a subscriber who might not be aware of the fact that they don't know any of that and simply pay out of fear for what might come next. That's right. And that's, well, that's what I've heard. And I, I to be fair, I haven't seen uh, one of those with the link itself, but I have heard, again, anecdotally stories of, of that nature. And you know, frightening language that is intended to extract settlement from people who, who may or very well may not have perpetrated the act of, of alleged infringement. And so that, I think, was a concern, and I think it was born of that concern that this new uh, amendment to the law came in effect and actually started regulating the content. And I know that this was criticized by certainly some people for not having happened sooner. Sure. And I think I was one of those people. You, you might have been. You might have been. <laughs> and I should note that I have seen some of those those notices there was a period of time where i was getting emails from recipients certainly on a weekly basis not sure what to do mm -hmm. and and left left feeling rather helpless and a little bit hopeless because it can be i think for a lot of people a pretty scary thing to receive what feels like a legal demand so the government sought to address this by by prescribing as you suggest limits on the language what happens when say HBO finds out that you have been illegally downloading the Game of Thrones is that they send an email to your internet provider and as of Canadian rules that came into effect in January of 2015 your provider then has to pass that email on to you and that is what has been happening at the University of Manitoba repeatedly. Is this likely to to address the problem? Well I, I suppose time will tell and, and I, I can't claim to have any real empirical uh, information on this, although one hopes that to the extent that the notices can no longer uh, demand settlement or uh, 
give any kind of indication that liability has been proven or found or that the person who receives the notice themselves are the ones who are liable, if anyone, should hopefully cause people, at least the careful readers, to maybe look at blogs like yours or other sources online to kind of you know, inform themselves as to what these notices really are. And I guess the most we can hope for is outside education spurred on by a less aggressive content in the notices. Let's, let, I, I, let's hope so, in yeah. the sense if you believe this is uh, a problem, and I, I certainly do. Mm. I, I, I know for myself, having spoken to at least a couple of ISPs, there is a lingering concern that the, they may still be forwarding on many of these notices, and I think at least anecdotally that's mm. what's taking place, in part because there is, while there may be rules now about what can be included, there is no standardization in terms of what's included in the notices you've referenced. Mm -hmm more or less classy, so to speak. Right. And if you're trying to forward on those notices as quickly as, as apparently they are, if they're sometimes literally doing it within minutes, the ability to actually dig into whether or not it includes any of the content that might be offside what the government wants to see in a notice mm -hmm. represents a significant challenge. Because it doesn't say that you can't forward that notice. It merely says you're not required to forward along a notification if it includes that information. Right. And I think to that point, and it's, it's a good one, these processes, obviously in the HBO case, but certainly as, as far as I'm aware across all of the ISPs, certainly the big ones, is, is an automated electronic process. It's not a manual one. And for those who are more interested about kind of the mechanics, at least about how Rogers does this, I would commend to you to uh, look at the oral submissions and read the facta of the parties to the Voltage and Rogers case that the Supreme Court decided recently, because they go into some detail, uh, counsel for Rogers goes into some detail on, on really how this is done on the ground. And it's certainly not an individual saying, oh, well, here's a notice and here's what it says. And they're not really checking it for compliance in that way, as far as I'm aware. Uh, and, and as far as the argument indicated to me when I viewed it. Right. And I think that, that's my understanding, too. The numbers are just too big in terms of being able to look at this uh, individually for an ISP's perspective. That, that provides a, a useful segue into the other side of the story. And in a sense, the Rogers Voltage case sort of sits a little bit in the middle with some of the stuff because it, of course, had references to notice and notice and mm -hmm. uh, litigation as well. Perhaps why don't we unpack a little bit that case and then get into the other side of what we're seeing taking place, which is the lawsuit side. Sure. Uh, the Rogers and Voltage case was actually, I think, useful in a couple of respects. But if I boil it to its, its essentials, it was really about whether and to what extent an ISP can charge for the uh, cost of complying with what's called a Norwich order, and I'll explain what that is in just a second, over and above what they have to uh, incur to affect their duties under the notice and notice regime. Because under the Copyright Act, the there are certain obligations, and the court in this case said both expressed and from those flowing from them implied obligations as to information retention management and sending the, uh, the information along as regards the notice and notice regime. And currently, while the law leaves room for the governor and council to permit the ISPs to charge for that, currently there is no such prescription. And so for that reason, uh, as interpreted by the courts, the ISPs are forbidden from charging any fee for compliance with the notice and notice regime. Okay, so just, let's, sure. just, let's just pause for a second uh, to make sure that, that everyone's clear on, on that system. We've talked about how ISPs are, are processing large numbers of, of these. The system envisions the possibility of ISPs charging for this, but only if the government sets a fee and at the moment, the government hasn't set a fee. So from an ISP perspective, one of the reasons presumably they have sought to automate this isn't just volume, but it's, of course, the cost, because at the moment, all of those costs are being incurred by ISPs. And ultimately, arguably, it's going to be subscribers, Internet users that are going to bear some of these costs, assuming that those costs get 
offloaded at the end of the day as part of what we pay monthly for internet services. Correct. Okay. I agree. All right. So they're they're not charging for it. The and the case case in this case. So in the Supreme Court of Canada case, <coughs> talks about that that interface between the notices and then the, and the Norwich, Norwich order. Okay. So a Norwich order is essentially a third party discovery order that permits somebody in this case a rights holder to obtain information from a non-party that is necessary to uh, prosecute the action and so in this case the way these lawsuits have gone and there are a number of them there's the famous voltage pictures reverse class action but in fact there's 16 or 17 other of these lawsuits smaller ones going in the federal court and we can talk about that later the way that these work is the rights holder generally enters into an agreement with a third-party internet surveillance company that monitors the BitTorrent protocol to ascertain which IP addresses are in the swarm and uploading and making available the work at a given point in time. And then with the IP address, the rights holder can determine which ISP the person is with but does not have their identity. And so in order to actually send the individual a statement of claim and, and serve them and get the actual legal process going against them, what they do is begin the claim against John Doe's, against basically placeholder defendants, obtain Norwich orders from various ISPs to disclose the subscriber information, and then sue those individuals. And that's essentially the, the system that has been going in the federal court now for a couple of years. Okay, so rights holders, or at least the agents working on behalf of these rights holders, actively monitoring internet traffic, identify IP addresses, but in doing so don't necessarily know who the, those individuals are, though they will know from the IP address block which, which provider the person happens to be using. Correct. And once they've done that, they're then able to use this legal process to effectively require the internet provider to disclose the identity of the subscriber so that they can proceed with their legal action. Exactly. And now looping back into Rogers and Voltage, that case was about what, again, as I said, whether and to what extent the ISPs can charge for the cost of complying with the Norwich order for any activities that are not expressly or impliedly already required to discharge their notice and notice obligations because as we discussed they can't charge for that and there is the court found some overlap as a technical matter in what has to be done for one and the other but the court found that it was not an entire overlap and therefore sent it back to the federal court to actually determine the dollars and cents issues okay so that particular case ultimately going to the supreme court of canada as you as you indicate leaves open the possibility that at least for the sort of that second stage where if someone is looking now to actually engage in a legal process and sue internet users, mm -hmm. there is the possibility that the ISP will can levy some of their costs, not the ones that involve the costs of complying for the notice and notice system, but addition, but costs that might be additive that are specific to this kind of litigation. Certainly, and, and it could really have a big impact on where the court actually lands on how much can be charged in any given case might have an impact because there's a big difference between five cents and five dollars when you're talking about the cost of retrieving thousands and thousands of records. And given that the statutory damages, which is likely the remedy that the rights holders seek to obtain uh, on the assumption that they actually want to adjudicate these things on the merits for non-commercial infringement ranges between only one hundred and five thousand dollars, there does become a potential cost recovery issue if the cost of obtaining the uh, identities of the would-be defendants is restrictively or prohibitively high. I, I, I want to continue with the, the litigation, but pause for just one, one moment because that notion of increased costs to at least obtain that information might have a real impact on the ability to pursue this. Is that part, in your view, of, of kind of the, that this system as a whole, which it seems like is 
reliant on the notion that individual internet users will not fight, mm -hmm. that the only way that you can make this work if you are bringing lots and lots of potential actions against internet users is essentially based on keeping your costs very low, either through threats, like we saw with notice and notice, or through litigation, which settles quickly because the moment you start increasing the costs of litigation, either to get the, in, get the identity of the subscriber or potentially even further once you actually formally sued, having a subscriber say, well, I didn't do this, or I don't think I'm liable, and I'm going to fight you, suddenly now the, the system of trying to extract some kind of revenue from these individuals kind of withers away because the costs become prohibitive. Correct, and and I think there are you know two sides to that as well, and certainly the rights holders, and, and this argument was made by Voltage in the Supreme Court, this is for them, they say, an access to justice issue because these are you know individuals or corporations who uh, want to enforce their copyright, and they're saying that based on the system as it is procedurally, again, the, the cost of litigation coupled with the low statutory damages and the, frankly, inability to prove real common law damages, as far as I can tell, uh, makes it, you know, as a practical matter, untenable for them to enforce their copyright. So that's their side of the story. And then the other side is, well, that perhaps the court system is being used here as a, a settlement mill in a way that is not necessarily commensurate with adjudication on the merits, which is generally the goal of most courts when, when, when claims are brought. Of course, settlement is always encouraged to unburden the court system, but if you're using the court system specifically as a settlement device rather than for an adjudication, I mean, query whether the courts will ultimately be happy with that. But, you know, it, it has been going on for a couple of years, and so at this point I don't know that uh, anybody has really pressed the issue. Fair enough. Now let's talk about what's been going on for the last couple of years. You mentioned there, there are at least a couple of different kinds of, of lawsuits taking place. Maybe you can unpack that a little. People over 45 years old can remember a time when you wanted to watch a movie. You had to either go to the movie theater or wait for it to play on television. There were no VCRs. There was no Netflix, no computers 40 years ago. Oh, how the world has changed. Now people can watch movies whenever they want, and for more choice in titles, some people choose to download movies using BitTorrent that are distributing material for free. That has resulted in some people getting letters from production companies saying they're being sued in what's called a reverse class action. So the one that everybody knows most about is the, is the Voltage Pictures, John Doe, uh, reverse class action so-called that is proceeding uh, in respect of the Hurt Locker film. And this was the first one of these Voltage Pictures actions to go. Although what's getting a significantly less attention and maybe a little bit more now is the you know 16 or so other lawsuits started by other movie studios that all appear to be linked with Voltage. I mean, for instance, all of these films are within the Voltage catalog, number one, and they're also all represented by the same uh, council. So it seems to me that while these are different plaintiffs in name, these there, there is a common design here. And so these are not proceeding procedurally as reverse class actions, or at least not yet, uh, or at least not on a formal basis, because the Lawsuits are commenced as simplified actions, which is the simplified rules under the federal court's rules dedicated to cases where uh, the monetary relief in question is $50,000 or less, and there are a few other restrictions that I won't bother getting into. Uh, but what they're doing is they're once again suing hundreds and in some cases well over a thousand individuals with respect to each of these films. But they managed to do so by issuing a single statement of claim for $50, whereas any defendant who wishes to defend on the merits, because this is not a class defense, must actually defend on their own and and do so individually, retain counsel, represent themselves, or, or whatever. So the access to justice and cost savings do exist, but I would I would submit that they are 
perhaps a little one-sided in favor of the plaintiff in this instance. And uh, the clients that I represent, I, I have a, so close to a dozen active files in these matters. None of them are in the voltage pictures because that's a, there's a whole different issue there with certification. But the individuals who are getting statements of claim in the mail in these other cases are in, frankly, a more pressing position because they have deadlines to defend or negotiate or settle, or, and, and they often really don't know what to do when they come to me, which is what I try to help them with. Okay, let's 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 just deal with the reverse class action quickly, and then okay. move on to the kinds of cases that you've been dealing with. Mm -hmm. So people may be familiar with class actions, where there's a large pool of individuals who may have been harmed in a certain circumstance. Individually, their claim may not be worth that much, but collectively, it may make economic sense to come together and thus use the class action system. What's a reverse class action? Well, true to its name, it is the opposite of the normal class action wherein the plaintiff is the class. So you have a representative plaintiff and, you know, a class of individuals with whom that person shares common issues and, and, and uh, points of contention with one or more defendants. In this instance, it is one plaintiff and a pool of defendants who, who purportedly have engaged in activities that are common uh, in law or in fact such that they are susceptible to class-wide resolution. And to just unpack that for a minute, a lot of the time people think that a class action always proceeds with you know, respect to the entirety of the claim, but that's not always the case. There are certain indivi individual issues that are not generally susceptible to class-wide determination. You know, so for instance, causation in, in a negligence claim would be one, damages in any sort of torts claim, and in, indeed in this instance probably would also have to be an individual issue because where within the statutory damages the uh, amount should fall with respect to any individual is dependent on the facts of their case and the factors in the law that are weighed to that effect. So even though this is proceeding as a reverse class action and there might be some common determinations, for example, that the plaintiff owns copyright in the work. That is something that it would, could be a common issue and is susceptible to class-wide determination because it's the same in respect of every defendant. But the fact that this is a reverse class action does not mean that everything will necessarily be certified as a, uh, a common issue and therefore proceed on a class-wide basis. Okay. And where are we right now with respect to this, that, th this particular qu quite large claim? So we're now uh, approaching the certification phase. So up until now, uh, the class has not, as far as I know, been exhaustively defined, and there was a security for cost motion that was brought by the representative defendant, uh, Mr. Solna, um, and he was successful in obtaining security for cost, if I'm not mistaken, in the amount of roughly $75,000, and I think that was fought, but ultimately that has now been paid, and so now that that's been paid, the process has been unfrozen, and to the best of my knowledge, and to be fair, I haven't looked at the federal court proceeding queries in, in a, a little while on this, but I believe they're now at the certification stage to figure out, as I was saying, what will be certified, whether there will be a certified class action, and if so, what issues will be certified for common determination. Okay. So there's still several legal hoops to go through here, whether or not this gets certified at all, and if it does, on what basis, and then, of course, there's the prospect of potential litigation on those issues, because that still doesn't prove that mm -hmm. um, that the that in this case, let's say the individual users themselves infringed copyright um, in violation of, let's say, one of if that becomes one of the issues that does get certified. Mm -hmm. And also, it's worth noting that at certification in the ordinary course in a plaintiff side class action, there's an opportunity and a mechanism for plaintiffs to opt out of the class so that they can pursue things individually. So. Likewise, in this case, one would think that defendants at the certification phase or thereafter would have a mechanism for opting out of the class as defendants. So, for instance, if, you know, defendant number one wants to hire their own lawyer and doesn't want class counsel, they should have an opportunity to do so. And, and in my view, that's a, that's a 
an important procedural fairness and rule of law issue that ought to be uh, respected in the reverse class action context as well. Right. So in other words, if I don't want to be sued under this class action, I should have the right to say I don't want to be sued under this class action. Yeah, and pursue me individually. That, right. that, that should be a right. And again, at this point, it's all kind of up in the air. I know the reverse class action has some precedent in uh, the provincial courts. Uh, the case law is, is kind of few and far between there, and I'm not aware of any cases, certainly in the IP context, where this has happened in Canada, and I, and I believe everybody agrees it's quite unprecedented. Okay. So we'll have to see how it goes. So really a novel case. The, the other aspect of litigation you've alluded to already is that there are a whole series of other cases that are proceeding not in the reverse class action side, but as more traditional cases, although using uh, potentially some, some tactics within the federal court, rules of the federal court that raise some issues. Perhaps we can unpack that a little bit. Sure, and I think it's worth noting that the statements of claim in all of these actions, at least the ones that I've seen, and I've seen you know, certainly over half a dozen of them, are essentially identical in boilerplate with you know, modifications for the name of the work and, and other such things. But really these claims are proceeding on two different theories of liability. Theory number one, you, the internet subscriber, are the person who downloaded, uploaded, made the work available, communicated it to the public by telecommunication, so on and so forth, and therefore you are liable for infringement for being the person who did the things that only the copyright owner can do. The second theory is what they're basically going as an authorization of infringement theory. So they're saying, well, even if you're not the individual who, who perpetrated the act yourself, it's your internet connection and you are responsible, in fact, the words negligence and willful blindness, if I'm not mistaken, are even used in the pleading to suggest that something of a duty of care is owed to, I suppose, rights holders, that if you're the internet subscriber, you're responsible for what happens on your connection, and therefore you have infringed by authorization. And that second theory is the one that I in particular am interested in challenging, because as I read the case law, that's quite a stretch. Well, it would be a remarkable stretch. It's essentially saying that anyone who has an internet service is responsible for a duty of care for how it gets used, not just by themselves, but anyone who might gain access, suggesting even things like open networks are essentially forbidden because how could you meet your duty of care if you didn't know necessarily who was accessing your network? Correct. And, and there is case law on authorization of copyright infringement, most notably, well, there are a couple of cases, but most notably the... Uh, there's the BMG case, and there's also the CCH decision from 2004, which is mainly known as the, the benchmark decision on fair dealing in Canadian copyright law, but it also deals with the notion of authorization. And in that case, there was an argument that by making available the photocopiers in the Great Library, the Law Society was actually authorizing copyright infringement to the extent that those who use those photocopiers uh, use them to copy more than a fair amount of, of the work, or any book, or, or periodical, or, or what have you. And the court said, no, authorization is, is uh, I can't recall off the top of my head the words, but it's to, to countenance, to sanction, to, to, to actually proactively do something. The court does say that, in, that as far as the evidentiary burden, a quote-unquote sufficient degree of indifference might in some instances amount to authorization, although, and I won't get into the, the background of this, they cite some UK case law that again suggests to me does not support what the plaintiffs are doing here. But more importantly, the court also says that there is a presumption that when one authorizes someone to use a technology, the presumption is that they're authorizing only licit legal uses. And so that presumption can, of course, be rebutted. But the fact that in that instance, the law society made the photocopiers available was not enough to show authorization. And I would suggest that likewise here, the fact that the mere fact that I allow you to use my internet connection does not mean I allow you to do illegal things on it. I mean, if we take this argument to the absurd, if you use my internet connection to go on Silk Road and hire an assassin, 
I am now, you know, an accessory to a criminal act. And, you know, that's a different context, but I think that that it would be the reductio ad absurdum of this position. Yeah, no, it, it, the, the implications are enormous, not just in copyright, but, but in other ways as well, and really would change the way in which, arguably change the way in which many people access the internet, or able to access the internet today. So we've got claims both that people are infringing and that they're using a network that is allowing for infringement and in doing so can be seen to be liable on those grounds. Have any of these cases gone to trial or any of these issues been tested yet? No. In fact, in Canada, all of these issues uh, remain untested and all of the cases I was talking about have not passed the pleading stage yet. And there's no sign that they will anytime soon on the basis of the way things have been going because in several of these matters, there's an initial wave of Norwich orders and then people are, are sued and, and served. And then there's another wave, maybe six months later, and another wave six months later. And so, you know, the pool of defendants grows and grows, but it, ultimately this is the uh, rights holder's way of maximizing perhaps settlement opportunities by uh, kind of having waves of notices and statements of claims that go out. And so it kind of refreshes the settlement incentive pool, if I could put it that way. I will say also that in the United States, the Ninth Circuit uh, Court, the courts in California, heard a case that is somewhat similar, and, and it's the law there is not exactly the same, and I won't get into the idiosyncrasies, but the court there found that a uh, merely being the internet subscriber was insufficient to state a claim for contributory infringement, which is, again, not the same, but roughly analogous to authorization in the Canadian context. And so, again, while there might be points of distinction, I think that's helpful. And I would also note that in the Rogers case, and this was arguably obiter dictum, uh, Justice Brown, who wrote for the, the majority, acknowledged at, at paragraph 35 of the, the decision that there may be instances in which the person who receives the notice, being the subscriber, is not, in his words, in fact, uh, will not have illegally shared the copyrighted content online. And then they say that he says this might occur, for example, where one IP address, while registered to a person who receives the notice, is available for use by a number of other individuals. And so without necessarily coming out and saying it, it seems to me that Justice Brown is leaving room for the possibility that simply being a subscriber, once again, is, is not enough to amount to authorization. And I expect that that is a point that will become live should these cases ever move forward to adjudication. Okay. So we've got some, there's some significant arguments that can be raised, certainly on the authorization side, clearly including fairly recent Supreme Court jurisprudence that raises some real doubts about that legal theory. And we've also got some questions even on the, the other side of their, their legal theory. Does that suggest that Internet users can simply ignore this? On the notice and notice side, it's just the notice. They can think about their behavior, but they don't have to respond quite clearly. What about if they happen to receive one of these lawsuits? Well, I, I, and again, without advising or not advising, it, it would be generally unadvisable to ignore a statement of claim because it would permit the plaintiff to proceed uh, to get a default judgment against the individual, uh, which limits uh, or, or basically ends their rights to participate in the proceeding unless the default is, is lifted, and then damages can be uh, ordered against them in their absence. And of course, in an undefended proceeding, the damages are likely to be higher, and you know, that that's probably not a grid strategy to ignore these notices. Okay, fair enough. And what kind of damages are we talking about in a copyright context? Well, again, to the extent that the the infringement is non-commercial in nature, the, well, let me take a step back. Under the Copyright Act, there are a whole suite of remedies. And as with respect to the monetary remedies, a rights holder can generally elect either between receiving ordinary common law damages, which is damages for lost profits and lost, you know, lost opportunity, and an accounting of profits, which is basically a, 
a, a disgorgement, as we say in law, of the profits that the infringer made. So that's one option. The other option to elect is for statutory damages, which uh, alleviates the burden of the plaintiff to actually prove any causal connection with the damages, and it creates a range. Uh, but the law sets out a number of factors, including you know the good and bad faith of the parties, the need for deterrence, a few other things, for the court to figure where within the statutory damages range a, an award should sit in a given instance based on those facts. And again, for non-commercial infringement, the range is $100 to $5,000 for all infringements. And that's important because this means that in principle a person can you know infringe copyright for a number of years, and then it's really a race to the court. And the first right hold, rights holder who seeks to sue uh, may do so, and that essentially bars any other rights holder for infringements that occurred up until that point from suing. And then the liability can be renewed after that point. But, And then there's commercial infringement where the range is, is significantly larger. It's between $500 and $20,000 on a per infringement basis, and there's no same first-to-court rule there. Now, in most of these cases, uh, these would almost certainly all be non-commercial infringements. I think there are some arguments as to whether uh, a, uh, a landlord who supplies internet is, is it renders it a commercial infringement I'm, I'm sure that the plaintiffs will make that argument but the case on that is not settled at all either so certainly for the overwhelming majority of people who receive these statements of claim their maximum liability is almost certainly going to be capped at five thousand dollars and frankly that would be a pretty high damage award for something like this okay so it's not, not something that anybody can ignore but on the non-commercial side the range is Hundred dollars at the low end, five thousand dollars at the highest end, but it sounds unlikely, or at least would be uh, unusual to see a judge in, in a single case go for five thousand dollars. But you know, of course, this hasn't been tested yet. Correct. It could it could happen, but again, it, this is not the sort of financial liability where people have to, you know, start selling their belongings here. That that's that's not the issue. But but it is a real court action, and it's not something to be ignored, in my view. James, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.